O'Neill & Associates' Seven Letter in the Boston Harbor Hotel hosted a virtual webinar discussion, a pollster's look at election season featuring David Paleologus, a national pollster and director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center. This virtual event is part of the Boston Harbor Hotel speaker series managed by O'Neill & Associates in Seven Letter. Here is the full audio from the webinar. At election season and featuring David Paleologos. I'm Stephen Johnston, Managing Director and General Manager here at the Boston Harbor Hotel. Uh, despite the fact that we can't meet together in person here at the hotel for this meeting, we're pleased to be a longtime host and partner with O'Neill & Associates for these timely and important discussions. So thanks so much for joining us today. And it's my great pleasure to welcome the CEO of O'Neill & Associates, Tom O'Neill. Tom? Stephen, thanks so very much. You're a wonderful partner. Uh, we've been doing this now for a number of years, and I want to thank you. And it's, it's no surprise, but uh, coming back in a campaign and, and, and in an election season is our dear friend David Paleologos. Yeah, he's here to discuss politics generally, but on the eve of elections, if you will. And uh, there's, as everybody knows, an awful lot going on. So I, too, want to welcome everybody for coming and joining us in this, in, in this remote virtual meeting that we're having. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I want to introduce David, uh, not only as a, as a, as a friend, he's, he's really a dear family friend. Uh, he's an associate, he's a professional that we work with from time to time. He is uh, a pollster of renown, um, the, uh, the great Nate Silver from uh, 538. Does a ranking of all pollsters in America and has ranked David and his company amongst the very best for accuracy, for transparency, and for being right on target every time. Now, David is known for making sure that he pinpoints various cities and towns around the state or around the country, which become the bellwether areas, so he, from which he can tell who a winner is going to be and where the one, when the loser is going to show up. Yesterday's primary election here in Massachusetts was no different. Uh, David was right on target. He called it, uh, not from the day one of both announcements, both candidates announcement of a year or a year or so ago, but from a month and a half or two months ago, he did. He saw the change in the atmospheric condition. He made a prediction and he turned out to be absolutely correct. Let me introduce my dear friend, David Pelliologos to all of you. And thanks again for joining us. David. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And thank you to our friends at Boston Harbor Hotel and their leadership in their space on COVID-19. It's great to be back with you all. So I'm, um, here to talk about some data trends for the 2020 general election now that we're shaking off the, the Democratic primary and, and, and all the conversation around that. And, and so I, I thought I'd share a couple of slides with you about Suffolk University because, of course, I have to do these presentations, but I also want to promote the university and, and talk about the kinds of partnerships the university has. And you know, when you have a great friendship, like I do with Tom O'Neill, he has that direct link to these, this screen of the people who I deal with and the people who have entrusted me to do their polling. And for this fall, we're doing polling nationally for the USA Today. You might've seen our, the first half of our national poll, which was released this morning. The second half, which I'll talk a little bit about, maybe give you a heads up on, is going to be released tomorrow and it'll probably be front page news. We also poll at the Boston Globe uh, regionally. 
and a number of other states, the Cincinnati Inquirer, the York Daily Record, the Reno Gazette, the Arizona Republic, the Journal Sentinel in Wisconsin. And when we think about the top research institutions like Man Marist and Monmouth and Quinnipiac and others, Suffolk University has more media partnerships than all of those universities combined. And uh, many of them uh, have been around longer than we have. Well, what does all this praise and accolade about Suffolk University matter to you? And it matters because, again, of the O'Neill network and his uh, ability to have his hands on the ground and, and, and be very granular in his approach to dealing with clients. And so minutes mean a lot in polling. Having an information when no one else has that information means a lot. And I'm not uh, Tom's only source. Tom has a, a wide net that he casts, and I'm, you know, we're, we're one of the preferred partners. Having advance notice on national trends is so important for companies, because oftentimes we're not just polling about politics and politicians, we're polling about finance, healthcare, transportation, education, issues that a lot of the O'Neill clients are dealing with right now. How are we gonna manage things? Uh, it also gives you the benefit of state-specific issues to shape goals and targets. There might be an issue that your company or that your affiliation might have in a particular state. We're in those states. We're constantly polling those states. Tom has access to not only that information, but also he's got the mind to read a poll. Nobody really can read a poll as good as Tom. Oftentimes, when I, even when I do interviews, and I did a lot of them today, People don't understand crosstabs and they don't understand polling. Tom's, Tom gets it. So it's great working with him on, on a lot of these issues. We also have the ability for you to place questions on public polls. There is a fee for that, of course, um, but it's a lot cheaper than dropping $50,000 to do a national poll or you know a sequence of state polls and focus groups. With, a, with Tom O'Neill, you have that access. I also write a column for, uh, and I'll be writing one tonight, when I, when I get off tonight, uh, for USA Today Online. Uh, one of the columns that I wrote a couple of years ago, 2018, was about how healthcare was a big crossover issue for Democrats, a real winner in the general election, not just in the, in the Democratic primary. Uh, Democrats haven't seen that yet. They haven't found their way to figuring out how independence can be won over with healthcare. On the flip side, our polling has also showed that public safety is a big winner for the Republicans. And you see with all of the racial unrest and the protests, how a crossover issue like that can begin to close the gap, which is what Donald Trump has done in some of the recent polling. You also have the ability of an analysis and forecasting with, with O'Neill. Very important to have that analytical ability and to be in a shop where you can do so many different things, where polling is just one thing. You've got crisis management. You've got the ability to do client relations, uh, federal and state and local. There are so many opportunities. And I know from experience, there are oftentimes you may have a person who you use for your researcher, a person you use for your PR, a person who you use for uh, you know, client relations, and they don't get along and they don't gel. Well, with Tom, and one of the things I'm impressed with him is that you get it all together. It's one team all in the same wavelength, and it's a very efficient way to manage things. You also have coordination of internal marketing and public survey narratives. I mean, that's just so important when you've got a team that's laser-like, that's on the same wavelength. And then, you know, uh, we do research that others have not done. 
And some of that research you might find crazy. We're going to talk about what likely voters want and think. But what about people who don't vote? And why do they matter? And that's where I wanted to start my presentation. This slide is a slide that shows total votes in the blue of the Democrat in the presidential election in 2008, 12, and 16. The red number is the total votes in millions cast by the Republican. And that gray bar is the total votes, not to, total people who did not vote in those presidential years. So in 08, you had Barack Obama, 70 million, 60 million from McCain, 80 million people who were eligible to vote, citizens who were eligible to vote in the United States did not vote in 2008. In 2012, 66 million for Barack Obama, 61 million for Romney, 90 million people, that bar went up, 10 million. 90 million people in the United States who could have voted didn't vote either because they weren't registered or they were registered but just skipped voting in November. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton, again, is that that 66 million number, popular vote winner, 63 million votes uh, uh, for Donald Trump, and 95 million people who are eligible to vote. So when you think about this, there are, there's, a, there's a large block of people, and it's not a million here, a million there. It's a big block of people. It's going to be 100 million people in 2020 who are eligible to vote, who won't vote. The blue lines are gonna be straight across, 60, mid-60s. The red line is gonna be straight, straight across mid-60s. That's a significant, and no one's polled it until Suffolk University polled it. And we polled it a couple of years ago, and we asked the question. We only polled people who weren't registered or, were, or who were registered and not voting. So the people who weren't registered, we said, why? Why aren't you registered to vote? My vote doesn't count. It won't make a difference. Apathy, 12%. I'm too busy, no time, 8%. I dislike both candidates. I, 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 it's dirty politics. Uh, similar responses on the right side. You are registered, but why won't you vote? Lack of information, 11%. My vote doesn't count, 9%. And again, we're talking about 100 million people in the 2020 election. So we researched this. We also found that these people actually say that they're informed. They're not people who are disconnected to American society. 39% said that they follow what's going on in government or public affairs most of the time. And another 23% said some of the time. That's an important number. Now, half of the people couldn't name who the vice president was. <laughs> only 51% uh, 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 guessed Mike Pence correctly. But in their own words, they believe that they're not voting, but they're engaged in society. So then we asked them a question, what do you think about the process of registering to vote? Would you say it takes too much time, it's too complicated, or is it easy to complete and can be done fairly? People acknowledge it would be easy to, to go and register to vote, easy and quick, 70%. Only 15% said it would be complicated. And in this other chart, People believe that voter ID would be okay. They'd be okay if they voted. It'd be okay that they would have to present their license of some ID to vote. Another 60% said they can understand how voter ID laws discourage some people from voting, especially from persons of color. So when we're advising political clients, the typical theater of battle has always been likely voters. 
But what I've just shown you is that there's this big mass of people who are unlikely voters. And so we've focused our clients on both of those lanes because they're so important. And if you can find people who are aligned with you politically, and you can either motivate them to register or, or get them to get out and vote if they are registered, but not likely, that's a big boon to your effort. And that's a big boon to your campaign. I worked on a number of campaigns privately in addition to my Suffolk work. And so when we make a decision, whether or not we're gonna involve a campaign to secure unlikely voters, there are four factors that we look at. What's the ballot test number? Now a ballot test is the election we held today, who's going to win? That's a ballot test, Trump or Biden. Uh, if that number, if you're an incumbent, is under 50%, that's a sign of weakness and you want, may want to consider accessing unlikely voters. Job approval, if your job approval is under 50%, hmm, not a good thing. You kind of want to be above 50%. What we call the deserve reelect question. We ask, do you think, insert candidate's name, Donald Trump deserves to be reelected if that number is under 50%? bad sign. And favorability, just an overall, I'm going to read you a list of candidates. Please tell me if you're favorable or unfavorable toward them. If that number is under 50%, that's also a red flag. Now, if two out of four of these factors are under 50%, we, we say that campaign has to employ a unlikely voter strategy, meaning you got to do the right thing with likely voters. You're going to identify them. You're going to advertise to them. You're going to mail to them. But then you're going to reach out to people who you are politically aligned with, who are not likely to vote, and bring them into the process. And that's what Barack Obama did in 2012. And that's what Donald Trump did in 2016. So we say, as when, when we're advising our clients, sometimes you don't want to run at your opponent. You just got to run by your opponent. If you collect the amount of votes and you identify your bases, you can run past your opponent and avoid a lot of the negativity that turns people off. We also found that people aren't too happy about the political party system. And so we asked these unlikely voters, do the two major parties do a good job of representing Americans' political views or are third or multiple parties necessary? And this is really very telling because you see that pie divided four different ways. Some people say two parties are enough. Some people say a third party is necessary. Still more say multiple parties are necessary. If you combine that light blue in the lower right with the green in the lower left, 57% of unlikely voters are unhappy with the two-party system. And that's part of the problem in terms of motivating them. And so how do these unlikely voters matter for this election? So what I thought I'd do is I give you a visual of how many people voted third party of the likely voters in 2016, Hillary, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, and what the impact of those third party voters would be in the election of 2016. Now, these are states that Hillary Clinton won. Hillary Clinton's margin of victory is in the light blue bar. The big purple bar that's next to the light blue bar is the total of Johnson, who was the Libertarian candidate, and Stein, who was the Green Party candidate's votes combined. 
Now in New Hampshire, you can see from the chart, 2,736 vote margin Clinton beat Trump by. But 37,000 people in New Hampshire voted third party. In Maine, you see 22,000 people was the margin that Clinton beat Trump by in Maine, but 52,000 people voted third party. Nevada, more total votes for third party than the margin of victory. Minnesota, look at that. 44,000, Clinton won by just under 45,000, but 150,000 uh, voters in Minnesota voted third party. Same with New Mexico, same with Colorado. So in that, in, in that instance, maybe third parties helped Hillary Clinton, right? Possible or not possible. But look at this chart. These are states that Donald Trump won in 2016. And these are also the bars of the total of Johnson and Stein votes combined. Starting with Michigan, Trump won Michigan by 10,704 votes. That's what the margin of victory was. But almost a quarter of a million people, 20 times that margin, voted for the Libertarian Johnson or the Green Party Stein. Wisconsin, 22,000 vote win for Trump, 137,000 people voted third party. Pennsylvania, same thing. Arizona, same thing. And look at Florida, twice as many people voted third party than Trump won, which was only 112,000 vote margin. So that, that, that pickup that we saw among unlikely voters has transformed a bit even among likely voters. <clears throat> and so I wanted to just briefly go over our national poll, which just hit this morning and it's on USA Today. In our poll, we are presenting the four candidates because both third party candidates are now certified on a majority of ballots in the country. Joe Jorgensen is on all of the ballots. Howie Hawkins is on most of the ballots um, and still attempting to be certified in addition to Trump Biden. That matters because we polled the race this morning and released it two different ways. First, we included the presence of the third party candidates. And you might say, well, it doesn't matter. Hawkins didn't even get a percent and Jorgensen only got 1%. But it does cause people to pause. And there might be people in these states who absolutely won't vote for Donald Trump, but who may not feel comfortable voting for Joe Biden, either because they don't think he's progressive enough or that they think uh, you know, he's, he's too much so. Uh, and might opt for a libertarian. And our finding was that the lead, which was 12 points in June for Biden, is now 5.3% when you include third party candidates with 7% undecided. Now, what we did after we asked this question was we said to the Hawkins, Jurgen, uh, uh, Jorgensen, uh, other voters, and the undecideds and refusals, what if it was a two person race? And that's where Biden begins to widen his lead. Just under 50% for Joe Biden, 49.8 in the blue, 43% for Donald Trump, a seven point margin with 4% undecided. That's a much more comfortable lead to be at 50% with only 4% undecided and to have a seven point lead. 
but there is not a ballot in this country that only has two choices. You always have third party choices and some states have 10 candidates for president. Some have 20 candidates for president. So it's a dynamic that we as pollsters, we have to replicate. Uh, we can't make this a two person race if there were more than two names on the respective ballots that are certified. Um, I saw in the question and answer a question about undecideds. Who are the undecideds in the, in the uh, uh, national voting? And so I picked out some categories for you for, for, for the person who would put the question out there. These are the categories that we see that are significantly higher than that 4% undecided or 7% undecided. Hispanic voters right now are 16%. And the origin of the Hispanic voter can be vastly different. Hispanic voters in Florida are vastly different than Hispanic voters in other places. Uh, uh, Cuban Hispanics, even in Florida versus Puerto Rico, uh, Puerto Rican uh, Hispanics are vastly different as well. So that's a demographic that's wide open. If you're, if, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you want to be focused on, on that bar because you're going to get a better return focusing on that particular demographic. Independence, this is not a surprise. Independents uh, tend to be the people who are the swing voters. They are in the middle. They watch what's going on on the left. They watch what's going on on the right. Sometimes they vote for Trump. Sometimes they vote for Obama. Again, this is really where the, the, the battleground will happen in the swing states. Um, so independents will be targeted and micro-targeted in the cases of those battleground states. We also found a high undecided among non-convention watchers. That makes sense. If they didn't bother to watch either convention, they certainly are not particularly interested and they'll probably make their decision late. Um, but again, mail-in voting will impact that. We'll talk about that in a second. Also voters that, that don't trust any news networks. We asked this question in our survey, which news source do you trust the most? And we give them 10 options. Fox News usually wins a small plurality, but they also are the least trusted TV station by an even wider margin. Um, so it's a very polarizing network, but of those people that don't trust any news networks, that's a high undecided as well. And also low income voters, voters with income of less than $50,000. Some people have said that's a natural for Joe Biden. Some people also say that Donald Trump connects with people who are less educated and have less income. So that remains to be seen how those undecideds break. You know, we asked the question in June when Biden had a 12 point lead, who do you believe will win the 2020 presidential election, Trump or Biden? And Biden won that perception question, 45 to 41, Biden in the blue and Trump in the red, but that's changed. Now 44% are saying Trump and Joe Biden is getting 41%. Perception does not equal reality, but it can be a leading indicator where people say, well, I'm not voting for Trump, but my neighbor is. So what, what was the major reason for that shift? What, um, what did you see happen out there? Yeah, so independence, and there were some people in the core um, uh, base of Trump, i.e. white voters, male voters, and older voters, where he was winning, Trump was winning, but he was winning by a larger margin 
in this poll. So I don't think Trump has stolen any Biden voters in any particular demographic necessarily, but he shored up his own base. Many, uh, there were men and there were older voters uh, uh, and white voters who were apprehensive of Trump six months ago, doubtful of him, not saying that they would vote for him, not supporting him. And now given the choices for president, they're much more convinced and they're, he, you know, Trump would say they're coming home to him, but these are people who he actually had lost in June and they're coming back. And some of them also are independent voters as well. David, let me ask you uh, for, for the sake of accuracy, how many people you're polling choose not to tell you the truth about whether they are or are, are not voting for Trump? <laughs> there are, there, there's no political party that has a monopoly on lying. So if there's lying, it's usually uh, 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 equal along a bell curve. Um, but there are ways to figure out whether or not a person is lying. And that's why we don't ask a five or 10 question survey. You know, you can, you can cross check a person's choice for president versus whether they approve of Donald Trump's job performance versus whether they like or dislike Joe Biden or like or dislike uh, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to figure that out. Um, and I guess the proof is in the pudding. You know, um, you look at the pollsters who you trust and you look at their track record and um, whether or not they've, they've come close. And if they can figure out a way to be accurate, you know, I, I don't think that that's a factor. I think it's an easy factor to cite if you're skeptical about polls or pollsters, or it's just, it's just less stressful to just dismiss it. Well, that was a Republican poll, or that was a Democratic poll, or, you know, that person's never accurate. And we get a lot of that hate on social media, and mm -hmm. it's funny, you know, after a while. I mean, initially, mm -hmm. Everybody, every post is bothered by it, but the same people who hate you in June love you now and vice versa. So the numbers are the numbers. We also asked the question about who will win the debates. And this is really no surprise. I mean, people in the Biden camp even are saying that they really don't feel totally comfortable with, uh, with Biden debating Trump because of Trump's uh, personality and, and, and how he comes at how he approaches debates. But I think some of that is spilled over into an overly cautious campaign. And, you know, the thought of Biden uh, not doing as many public appearances is beginning to catch up with him. And I think maybe this poll and other polls will motivate him to get out a little bit more um, and to see whether or not our polling stacks up with his own internal polling or not. Uh, and for Trump, I think it gives Trump uh, a benchmark to see what that, he, you know, more people expect him to do better against Joe Biden. And if he doesn't, he's going to have to exceed that expectation. And that's, that's really part of the, that's part of the challenge. We also asked about the Black Lives Matter movement. And this was a surprising finding. We asked, which statement most closely represents your opinion on police shootings of Black Americans? that they reflect systematic racism in American society, 41%, or that they represent case-by-case -case individual actions and misdeeds, 49%. And again, this is further evidence of a divided country and, and, and really a difference in how race is perceived. When you look at whites, I just know off the top, when you look at whites who answer this question, 
35% said systemic racism, 35%, whereas blacks, 78%. So you can see, you know, how issues like this still haven't crossed over and, and not even to the extent of it being a majority. Now, whether or not it, violence, in addition to uh, a protest enters into that, that, that could be. But, you know, there's no clear majority in this question, but it just tells us with the margin of error that this is a divided issue. And speaking of protests, we asked the question, and this was, again, in the paper today, should peaceful demonstrations continue even though violence has followed in some cities? 57% said yes. Even though violence has followed peaceful protests, I still support peaceful protests. The other option was no, peaceful demonstrations should not continue because violence, because violence has followed in some cities, uh, you know, and you see it in the uh, mid thirties, 36%. And again, this speaks to uh, our pride as Americans that people need to be able to demonstrate uh, uh, peaceably. And even if there's a risk of there being violence, people are still saying it's, it, it's okay. I, people should have the right to demonstrate, even with the consequences. Um, I'm going to go fast through these next two questions because you're not supposed to know the answers to these because they're going to be out tomorrow. But I can tell you that coronavirus um, is, we, we asked the question about whether or not it's under control and people don't believe it's under control and whether it's diminished your income and people are saying it hasn't. The questions that are going to be um, the questions that are going to make news tomorrow um, are, are two questions, and it's funny. This happened on a whim. I, it was a few hours before we were going to set in the field, and I just tacked on these questions uh, about COVID nineteen, and I asked the question: If there's a vaccine, what will you do? A, take it right away. B, wait until others have taken it first. C, not take it. Now, I figured most people would take it right away. Not true. And when you see the result tomorrow, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be shocked. It's, it's, I'm not going to give you the percentage, but it's like less than a third of people are saying that they would take the vaccine right away. So if you're in the healthcare industry, that's an important piece of information to know ahead of the time. Because everybody has this idea that, oh, as soon as a vaccine, the stock market, oh, as soon as there's a vaccine, everything's going to be great, the economy, everything's going to return to normal. And Trump believes it's going to be a, a way for him to get reelected. And, and uh, you know, you've got all of these people painting these rosy people are going to go to ball games and ride the tea and fly in planes. The fact of the matter is this finding if it's repeated by other researchers, could rock the financial markets. When people realize that only a third of respondents, voters in the United States are saying that they would take it right away, that's a compelling issue. And you'll see that'll be front page tomorrow. We also asked the question of what if there was a, what if the federal government mandated, mandated a COVID-19 vaccine? What, what then, what would you do? Only, only half of the people are saying that they would take it. And a lot more than a third would say they would not take it. So I think when, when those poll results get out there, they're probably going to uh, 
overshadow a lot of the political polling that you're seeing because it just it's so blatantly obvious that you can't make people do things. So one of our attendees has asked the question, is the hesitation around the vaccine reflective of a trust issue with the government? They are intertwined. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this, okay, without violating confidentiality. On the first night of the polling, I monitor calls. I monitored two calls that struck with me. One person answered the question, I have to take the vaccine right away. I'm a cancer patient. I have no choice. I have to take that vaccine right away. Another respondent says, it depends on who's president. Now think about that. Do you get a blood test, whether there's a Democrat or a mammogram, whether there's a Democrat or Republican in office, or do you take your children to get a flu shot, depending on who's in, who's in office? That's an excellent question from, from, the, uh, uh, from the people here in the room because it is entwined. People are mixing healthcare decisions with political leadership, and that can be a very dangerous, slippery slope. Another, another question, I'm gonna switch channels on you just a little bit. Vince uh, Rigucci asked the question, how did mail-in voting impact yesterday's races in the face of what they're talking about nationwide impacting the November elections surrounding the word, as the president uses, rigged or fraudulent mail-in situations? Yeah, so that's a terrific question. I, I two parts uh, for that question. Number one is 700,000 people voted in advance in Massachusetts yesterday before the election started. 700,000 people. There were people who didn't want us to pull, nobody wanted to pull this race. I mean, we, we got lucky. We, I mean, we, you know, we, we had Marky by 10, you know, Marky won by 10, and that was like catching lightning in a bottle. But most polls, we didn't want to pull it because of so many, you know, because so many people voted in advance. And what we found from the polling is that Marky had banked a significant lead going into yesterday. Marky in our polling was up almost 20 points, 20 points of that first 700,000 votes cast. So we knew, you know, kind of where that deficit was. And so if Joe Kennedy, if there was another 700,000 cast, which there was, Joe Kennedy had to win that group 60-40 to break even. And it turns out he, he won, Joe Kennedy probably won among the people who voted yesterday many of whom were in urban cities, but he didn't have the margin that Markey banks. So, so to, in answer to the, the first part of the question is, it was very important that for Markey that you had mail-in voting. It was one of the reasons why he was able to, to have such a margin. Now, the second part of the question about November, we, we started asking those questions, and you can see that in the, in the poll report today in USA Today, and that is that one in four people are saying that they won't trust the election if their candidate loses. That's pretty powerful. You may say, well, it's only 25%. That's, think of your neighborhood. You got 10 houses in your neighborhood. Two or three of those houses are gonna be not, are not gonna be accepting. Whether it's Democrat or Republican, what are they gonna do? How are they gonna resolve that conflict in, in, in their brain and, and, and accept the election? And it turns out that more Democrats say that they would be less accepting of a Trump presidency than Republicans 
accepting of a Biden presidency. You know, Nate Silver is, uh, is quoted in this morning's newspaper. And even though you're my, you're my pollster of choice, <laughs> uh, he did say this morning that President Trump had a 27% chance of winning re-election and Joe Biden had a 63% chance of winning the election. Do you buy that? Yeah, well, the day before the election in 2016, he had the same numbers. I mean, if you go back, and, and by the way, he was, he was closest. You know, he, he had a Hillary Clinton with like a 70% chance of winning and Trump a 30 percent the day before the November election. And everybody on the left said, you're, you're so wrong. It should be 99%. The New York Times had 99%. Larry Sabato and uh, Charlie Cook and all of the other aggregators had it in the 90s. And they were like, Nate, why do you only have Hillary with a 70% chance of winning? And, you know, he, he actually found that there was a probability that Trump uh, was going to win. Um, so those, you know, those odds are right today. If the poll says it, I mean, the poll says it's a 50-43 race um, and that the undecided is low, which tells us that our poll says if the election were today, that Trump loses. There's a pretty good chance of that if you run the bell curve and, I mean, unless you're outside of the, you know, the sweet spot in the bell curve. Uh, but right now, you have to be looking at the battleground states and all of the important events that are going to transpire between now and November. Will there be a vaccine? What will be the state of the economy? Will there be a hurricane that hits in October like there was in 2012? Um, you know, are there going to be other issues? You know, is it possible that some other national event is going to take place. And is that going to take people's eye off the issues that are important to them today in early September or not? David Radlow asks the question. He's a participant with us today. On the question, uh, on the issue of COVID-19 vaccinations, um, the media and certain experts have questioned the safety and efficacy of taking a vaccine, not taking a vaccine until it goes through that stage three clinicals. Shouldn't that be part of the question you posed? Yeah, I think it should be. I think it should be, and it and it probably will be. You know, as I say, the questions that that we were at, we were trying to test in a in a broader way. And again, it wasn't the focus of, of the of the poll. The poll was basically on Trump and Biden and the debates. You know, we I haven't even talked about any of that because there really wasn't anything newsworthy. Most people didn't watch the debates, and of those people who watched, you know, weren't impacted in any significant way. But that's, that's why we poll, so that when we get a result like you're going to see tomorrow, that we can, we can craft a series of questions based on that finding that'll probe a little bit deeper. You know, uh, I'm, you know, we're pretty good at what we do, but we're not perfect. And we don't oftentimes get every question on every issue in the right sequence to be probed. But I think this will enable other researchers who see our, our results presented tomorrow to pick up on our questions and then think about it and then maybe ask a couple more to get to that particular issue. Uh, and I think the third uh, stage trials are very important, especially for people who have, uh, you know, medications that have been tested, tried and true. Um, and, you know, you don't want to have a situation where you skip, the, there's a reason there's a third stage of a, of a trial medication. And so 
you know, that's not a place you cut corners, especially when people's lives are at stake. I'm not saying that, you know, the vaccine developed won't be great and save lives, but, you know, you, you, you have to solve the, the crisis, but you also have to protect people's long-term health. David, talk about the key states for the election, the presidential yeah. election. And what do you think is going on in those states? Yeah, so it's important. Look, we have 10 weeks. We usually poll once or twice a week, a different state. So a lot of the states, we're not going to poll which are in gray. And I thought, you know, we're, we, you know, I would rather poll six states twice or three times than, you know, 12 states once. So I, I, I believe, and this is not unique to us, but, you know, you, you can see this on many websites. You know, we were looking at the most recent polling that's A-rated a or thereabouts in these states to watch. And Pennsylvania, you had mentioned Pennsylvania, Tom, earlier, Florida, Wisconsin. I mean, we've got media partners in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona already. So those would be easy ones. We also, um, uh, you know, would like to pull Minnesota and, uh, and, and Michigan. Now, Minnesota is an interesting state because Kanye West made the ballot. And you can laugh, but when you think about how one or 2% going to a fringe candidate might impact an election, Kanye's on the Colorado ballot too. He's certified for the, he's certified for the Colorado ballot. Uh, he's gonna take votes away probably from Joe Biden there and nobody's talking about that. Um, better not, people believe better not to talk about it because you just you know raise people's awareness, but he, he missed most of the ballots. I mean, he's only on I think 12 or 15 ballots. Most of them don't matter, but there were a few states that do matter. So. Minnesota is one of those states we, we kind of have to pull. North Carolina seems to be tipping to Trump. I mean, the pre-North Carolina polling was Biden. Same with Georgia. So those are states that I'd really like to get, sink my teeth into in the next few weeks. Um, there are a lot of other states that don't have current data. And I might be a little bit too generous to Biden, but you know, obviously, Colorado, we don't have current data. We, you know, you've got the third party issue there. Maine, I don't think Biden's in any trouble in Maine. Um, you know, uh, New Hampshire, I may poll New Hampshire. We have the Boston Globe as a partner. If they're interested, we certainly would be interested. It was a very close margin, as you saw from a previous chart. Um, and Biden did not do well there. I mean, he did not do well in New Hampshire. Everybody knows it. Um, New Mexico, I think, is, is, is good for, for Biden, but we don't have a lot of polling current data. Uh, Nevada is an interesting state. Um, you, you know, you've got, you've got a ballot option on the Nevada ballot that's none of these candidates. Can you believe that? So your choices are Biden, Trump, uh, Hawkins, Jorgensen, maybe one or two other fringe candidates. And then you have the option of saying none of these candidates. That's an option to vote on the Nevada ballot. It's always intrigued me. Uh, but, I don't, but I don't know whether or not we're going to uh, uh, be able to poll Nevada in addition to the other states. Virginia, I think, looks pretty good for Biden. And then there are states like Ohio used to always be more of a toss-up. But in recent elections, Ohio has really tipped to Republicans. And I think part of that is the diminishing population in Cleveland, which really carried most Democratic candidates. 
So, you know, if you were a Democrat, you had to win Cleveland big with a high turnout, but then you also had to be competitive in state in cities like uh, Dayton and Cincinnati and so on. So, uh, but right now we don't have a lot of current data there. Iowa, Ohio, and Texas seem to be in Trump's category. And uh, so those are the states that we're hoping will get some current data so that we can make a determination of whether to dump the resources into polling those states. David, can you talk at all about some of the Senate races um, that are going, occurring around the country? You, you mentioned Maine and, and the state of Maine leans to Biden. What does that mean for Susan Collins up in Maine? That's a question, by the way, by Dan Riley. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I mean, we haven't polled it. And, um, you know, I'd be commenting on polls that, you know, th there isn't enough data to, to, to tell. Um, I think Susan Collins has some explaining to do, especially with the um, her position on Supreme Court justices and so on. Um, but she's popular. I mean, she is she is popular, but she's vulnerable. Uh, my friend, uh, Joni Ernst, who uh, I sat at one of the DC dinners with, uh, who was friends with Susan Page, uh, she's, in, she's gonna fight. She's in trouble in, in, uh, in Iowa. She's trying to turn the tables a little bit. She's had some personal setbacks, you know, in the last six years, she's gotten divorced and, you know, she's lost some of her core support in Iowa, you know. Um, so th th those are definitely issues. We first have to determine whether or not there are going to be coattails here. And right now we're not seeing that Biden's in a position to provide coattails because we're coming into the fall where his lead is diminished. And so it's the opposite really right now, because if you're Trump, you want Biden to continue not being public and you look forward to the debates because you'll probably have an advantage because you've, you know, because Biden sometimes have, has a recall problem and Biden's never really polled well after he debated in the Democratic primary. We were in the field almost all the time after uh, the Democratic debates and he always had a spike down, was the, you know, and would say who won the debate and who lost the debate and inevitably people would say he lost the debate. Now, the good news for Biden is that the bar is low and if he exceeds expectations, he could come out a winner out of the debate cycle. But we have to figure out for the Senate candidates whether or not there's coattails or not. Right now, Biden's got to get his stride and he hasn't done that. I think he thought his VP pick would, would have been a jump, a jump start, but it's not, it's not, bearing itself out right now. Um, you know, so got to take that in sequence. Keith Mahoney, who was with us, asked this question. Curious about your methods, David, landmine, cell phone, and how that impacts the demographic representation of the pool's respondents. Does it trend older? Does it trend wider? Does it trend regionally? Yeah, it's a terrific question. So we use live callers only. Some people poll by phone, you know, the robo polling IV, what's called IVR, uh, interactive voice recording, press one for Trump, press two for Biden. Well, all of our calling is live calling and the sampling has changed. And when I got into this business, it was mostly landlines and occasional cell phones, but it was hard to get lists because phone companies were very overprotective of, you know, of the ability for people like us to access that information. Now, 
we're pretty we're we're higher I think than most pollsters in terms of our cell phone apportionment. We're about eighty five to eighty eight percent cell right now. You have to include landlines only because there are some areas of the country and even some areas of our state that have bad cell service um, because of you know whatever Wi-Fi towers whatever. So there are problems um, and you can't do a hundred percent cell. Um, I don't particularly like online panels exclusively because people are self-selecting into the group. You want to have random sampling and random sampling so that you're touching potentially every demographic that you need. And remember one thing about polling, it's not necessarily who you end up with in terms of who you're talking to, because if the poll is done correctly, it's the apportionment of the demographics that matter. We've had polls of 500 respondents that have done very well versus polls taken during the same time of 2,500 respondents or 2,000 respondents, you can have four times as many respondents, but if it, they're in the wrong proportions, it's like baking a cake. If you put too much salt in the, in the batter or too much sugar and it comes out tasting bad, well, polling's the same way. You have to have the right proportions of the key ingredients so that when it comes out, you know it's right. Peter Foreman, who is the head of the South Shore Chamber of Commerce, has a question. Peter formerly uh, was a, a state, a Republican state representative from southeastern Massachusetts, and a wonderful leader, by the way, and, and, a, and a very good friend. Asks the questions about, about Maine. Are both congressional districts in Maine, do they both lean Biden? Yes, they do. One of them is closer, um, and, and uh, um, but I, I, I think with the Collins race, um, and I think the Democratic National uh, uh, Committee understands the the, uh, the district that could be vulnerable in Maine, and they've been dogged. Actually, both parties have used our unlikely voter research, as I say. Uh, Barack Obama did in 2012, and uh, as as uh, John Walsh has attested to privately, and. Uh, and also, you know, um, Trump did. You know, Trump found rural voters that didn't care and didn't vote, and he got them out there to uh, to vote for him. So, I think this research tells us that there are a lot of people in Maine who don't vote. Uh, if you look at Michael McDonald's research on non-voters, Maine has a chunk of people who usually don't vote, and I think if those people are identified and brought out to the polls that'll help the Democratic Party in a lot um, in, in higher proportions than one would think. Um, and, and, and it's unique because with unlikely voters, you don't have to persuade, right? We spend millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars on TV ads persuading likely voters, persuading, messaging. With unlikely voters, all you have to do is find people who are like you or who believe the same things you believe you don't have to convince them. You just got to convince them to vote. You don't have to convince them on the issues. And so that's the kind of numbers game, I think, that both both sides are working on diligently to identify their core support, their core bases, and to bring them out in November or before. So Brad Freeman has a question that's related to that. Are there any ballot questions in swing states that will drive certain segments of the populations to the polls, similar to same-sex marriage issues uh, in the 2004 GOP leading states? Yeah, it's too, early, it's too early to tell. I mean, that takes just cross-tabulation of 
the undecideds at a particular Senate race and the undecideds for president cross tabbed against a particular issue, then you can create a model where the ye a yes vote on a particular ballot question or a no vote drives a certain demographic. Um, that, that becomes a little bit more um, involved. Uh, it's called a double cross tab. So we, and we've done those. Um, but you're right, in the past, issues like uh, uh, abortion, depending on the state, or uh, l legalizing marijuana um, and other issues can be drivers of particular demographics. And so what we tend to look at is if, it, if the demographic that's going to be driven out is already decided in the presidential race or in the Senate race, it's less impactful. But if you find a demographic like, you know, we, uh, you know, uh, I privately did polling for Richard Neal in the first congressional district. We knew that, you know, that middle-aged women were high at a higher undecided, which is why we launched the Nancy Pelosi endorsement. We had polled Nancy's name in our polling. She had an incredibly high favorability because it was the likely Democratic voters, and it was a very effective tool. It brought the undecided down in the race, and it broke those high undecideds like middle-aged women into Neil's camp. And that's the kind of micro-targeting that can become very effective, whether you're Democrat or Republican. So Eric Allen has a question related. What are the current trends shown in the, showing in the polls that should worry Republicans and Democrats, respectively? Um, the, uh, I, I think that there's a trust issue. Um, it's ironic that the, that the wheelhouse issues of the Democrat versus Republicans are not being used. Maybe they're holding them until the end. But you've got uh, education, which I, I'm education secondarily, but you've got healthcare, then education on the Democratic side of both winners. You can really uh, do a lot with independence and persuasion of likely voters who are independents and public safety and stability. And that's somewhat being exploited by Donald Trump right now in the way, even in the wake of the violence and the shootings and the protests. Those are both crossover issues and they could collide. Uh, what makes this election, uh, you know, more uh, challenging for us is that you don't have the normal sequence of messaging, right? So in a political campaign, it's informative, first few months, comparative, second few months, negative if you need the final three months. So you're, you're, you're introducing yourself, you're informing about yourself, then you're comparing yourself to your opponent, and then you're, you're uh, potentially going negative. This turns it upside down. North Carolina ballots are, are, are going out tomorrow. They're being mailed. So you don't have time to sequence messaging, which is what you know, the textbook says you do. You, can't, you gotta throw that out. You've gotta start getting people identified and pulling them out now you know, and do what Markey did, which is to bank an early lead based on the issues and the demographics that have the highest intensity, what we call intensity of support, which means, you know, if certain people believe Green New Deal, they're at a much higher level than a person that might say education or taxes is the most important issue. So it's aligning us at a statistical value for each of those factions that believe in specific issues. It could be social issues, it could be Medicare for all, and so on. That's another part of the, the Neil win um, yesterday, which worked to our advantage, was Social Security. Very little was, you know, Neil is a champion of Social Security and making sure that 
his constituents know that the fund is not going to run out on, under his watch and that he'll be, uh, and, and older people came out in droves because they felt that he was a vote to protect their own livelihood and their own self-interest. So you're huge on bellwether, bellwether communities, yeah. bellwether issues. Take the, the Kennedy-Markey race. What were the bellwether issues or, or cities and towns that you looked at? Yeah, so normally Waltham is a pretty good indicator um, for both general elections and primary elections. Markey did a little, I expected this, Markey did a little bit better in Waltham. It wasn't, it wasn't exactly reflective of the number. I think it was two points higher for, um, for uh, Markey. I think they had him at 57 in Waltham and it was 55. Um, but Waltham is always a good go-to bellwether. Uh, Gloucester is, uh, we've used Gloucester before. It's funny, a lot of the communities that touch water, uh, we've used, and that's strange, you know, we've used um, communities like Gloucester, like Brockport, communities down the Cape. Um, uh, um, and, it, it, and the funny thing about Bellwethers is, unlike Waltham, which is always somewhat in there a lot, they do change over time because demographics change. So if, for example, your, your community, let's say you're in a community of 30,000 people, and that's, your, that's the bellwether, you live in you know, Falmouth, say. Uh, if an elderly home moves into, you know, is built in Falmouth, that's gonna adversely, ch you know, that, that's gonna change the demographics in Falmouth such that it may not be a bellwether in two years or four years. Or if you're in a community and a new dorm is built, uh, you know, you're gonna have this influx of, you know, 500 new kids who might be voting, that's gonna change whether or not that community stays a bellwether. So you have to be on your toes on the bellwether research and we're always eliminating uh, bellwethers from election to election, but there are some that stand up over time and that are pretty good at calling the statewide vote. We have time for just one more question to be answered. And again, it's from Eric Allen. What Senate races, you mentioned uh, Joni uh, Ernst and you mentioned Susan Collins's uh, senatorial campaigns and elections coming up. What other what other states should we be looking at to see if the shift in the Senate doesn't in fact occur? Well, <laughs> well I, I don't know if it will occur, but I mean, you, de you definitely have, uh, you know, a race in Michigan. There's a bunch of other races. I, I was actually going to do a couple slides on the Senate race, but I, I, I didn't know whether or not uh, we'd have time to get it in. But uh, I promise you, if you want to do just a another Zoom on just the Senate races, um, you know, especially when we actually have our own polling data, I'm happy to do that. But it's gonna be really, um, it's gonna be really closely watched. And I think, I think the main takeaway for any candidate for Senate is to do polling and to do good research. And this is what Tom has always espoused, not only for politicians, but for companies. And you really have to, you have to understand the demographics and, 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 and how specific you can get a race. How, you know, a couple million people, you know, over eight states are gonna determine the national election. Who are they? What do they drive? Um, you know, do they eat out? How old are they? Um, you know, do they have children? Um, you know, the micro-targeting that you can do in other social media platforms and, and in business is being used in, in politics right now. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, hundreds of millions of people get left by the wayside. We know Massachusetts is a blue state. 
I have to teach my students that every vote counts, and I do, and it did with the Marky Kennedy race, but we all know that for president, Alabama is going to be red, Massachusetts is going to be blue, you know, and we know what the map is going to look like. And so there's a very few, comparatively speaking, group, uh, amount of people who swing these elections. And, uh, and we believe, and I've always believed that good research, you know, looking into not only the opinions on policy issues, but the emotions, you know, are these people troubled? Are they stressed out? You know, are they middle-aged and they're dealing with their own kids, but they're aging parents? Or are they kids who feel like the world is falling apart? I mean, my, just as an aside, my, my youngest son, you know, had a senior year during COVID-19. He had no senior prom. He had no graduation to speak of. It was like a drive, drive-through. You know, I mean, and how many kids are adversely impact? Why me? Why, you know, why, why did I miss out on my senior year and, you know, going to parties, having to have masks and social distancing? So there's a lot more depression and anxiety that's out there that no candidate is focused on. And that potentially could be one of those factors that could swing an election with a swing voter in Ohio or in Wisconsin or in Michigan, where that family may say, you know, I could have gone either way in this election, but now that he says it, you know, he's connecting with me. And that's where good research comes in. David, this hour has been just a terrific, a terrific hour of, of input and common sense. And it's just wonderful to hear you. And I want to thank you very much for coming and spending as much time as you have with us. Promise us both Stephen and me, that you'll come back, say, the week, sometime in the week before the November election and kind of bring us up to speed as to where you are. Promise thank me. You. Thank you. Stephen, you're a great partner, and I thank you very much for your, for your generosity of time and, and effort. You're just terrific. And you're very welcome. If we were here at the hotel, I'd take you down to the dark bar for a drink, everybody, but unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to you and the Boston Harbor Hotel folks. It's great to be with you. We'll do it again soon. Again, David, thanks a lot. And for everybody for joining us, it meant a great deal. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, we'll, get some, we'll get some reaction from some of you. Thanks everybody.